night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Great to have you here tonight as we get ready to have another terrific discussion. Looking forward to our conversation. Our guest tonight will be Karen Cavalli, who is an author. She'll be talking about the American taboo against speaking openly about encounters with otherworldly uh, figures and phenomena. And she'll be doing that through individual stories, and she'll look at the history and culture that has led us toward this attitude. And, uh, you know, this is something that we've talked about a lot, actually, on the program. And we've often talked about the fact that shows like Ghost Hunters changed the paradigm a little bit. It allowed some of these conversations to take place that maybe couldn't have taken place previously. And we'll get her take on that. She's got a book about the topic. It's called Bad Mind. Uh, she has several other books as well, including the No Boundaries, Boundaries trilogy of books. That's a fiction series, uh, including the books Undercover Goddess, Down. And the third of the trilogy is uh, called The Return of the Goddess. And that is a tentative title because it has not been written yet. Anyway, so... <laughs> Yeah, I could you I could do a 1978 disco hair feathering. I could absolutely do that right now. Um, I won't though. I'm going to have to do something here because this looks awfully ridiculous. I'll do it during the break. Anyway, uh, please subscribe to our channels on YouTube, also Twitch. Both channels can be found by searching for JV Johnson. If you uh, are a podcast listener and you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, do that as well. The podcast version of the show, by the way, is found by searching for Beyond Reality Paranormal not radio, Beyond Reality Paranormal, and you can find the podcast. It's available on all major podcast platforms, and I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe to that as well. It's a great way to listen to the show. If you miss one of the live broadcasts, you can pick it up um, as a podcast. It downloads to your phone and other smart device automatically. Very, very convenient, very simple, and a great way to listen to the show. I uh, highly recommend it, and I thank all the people who are currently subscribed and currently listen that way. We have something like 10,000 downloads a day of the podcast version of the show. It's quite remarkable, and I thank you all for that. But with that, we'll take a break. We'll get our guest on with us, and we'll have this conversation because uh, it's going to be an interesting one. I'm really excited to talk to Karen tonight. It's Beyond Reality, and we'll be right back. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month, less than a dollar, goes a long way in helping us produce this program, provide great interviews for you during the course of the week. I thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. But we have a great conversation ready for you tonight. Our guest is Karen Cavalli. She writes fiction and nonfiction, and it's been published. Her work has been published in magazines, newspapers, books, online, and in hard copy. She worked, her, she's worked for technology for 10-plus years. Uh, she's been to India and China as a result of that work. And she's also focused on encounters with the anomalous in recent years. That's primarily what we'll be talking about, including her forthcoming book called Bad Mind, which will be published by Aster Press. And we're looking forward to having the conversation. And uh, Karen, welcome to Beyond Reality. Great to have you with us tonight. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm very excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about your journey as a writer. Uh, you've written fiction. You've written nonfiction. You've written some, some uh, I, I don't know what they'd be called, scientific books or, I mean, some, some very, very serious uh, matters. I mean, you've covered a lot of different mm-hmm. genres here. Tell us about that journey a little bit. I have. Well, the, the main impetus was I just wanted to be writing. And the writing I first started doing when I was 10, I started keeping a journal um, of just sort of normal 10-year-old things, but also that was when these weird experiences started waking me up in the middle of the night. These, I had no reference for them, um, 
Most took place during dreams, but some took place in, in waking time. Didn't tell anyone about them. So I started writing those down at the same time that I was writing about, you know, my crush on, on Donny Osmond, which, of course, <laughs> of course, will date me, you know. Um, and so I just, I had these journals where I kept both of those, those lives journaled. And that, that writing, that just became such a burning need to just keep doing. And that burning need really just just drove me to make a lot of decisions about um, where I moved, where I lived. And I was always writing and I always had this, this notion, this fantasy that I could make my living as a freelance writer. And so that is what I tried to do. Um, but I had, you know, I had responsibilities. I had rent to pay. I had car insurance to pay. And I know a lot of, there are people who do make it, you know, they make their living as freelance writers. I never pulled it off. I never pulled it off. I, I just wasn't able to. I, um, and, and, and so I, in order to pay off my student loan, because um, I went to graduate school, I got my MFA in creative writing and that was a, a wonderful experience. Um, but then reality hit <laughs> and, and I, um, I, and I was I was single for a long time. I mean, I was old for an American bride. I was 47 when I got married to my husband, Tom. So, you know, I was my own wage earner for, for a long, long time. Sure. And so I had, I, I was always writing, though, no matter what. Um, even I did temp jobs at first, um, in, working in banking, and I would get up at 3 a.m., which was always the time, actually, when these these encounters with anomalous beings and energies would occur. Um, not while I was writing, as far as I know, unless I was channeling something I didn't realize. So I would get up at three and write. And so I was always writing and always working. And a lot of that writing is now actually what is getting published, the fiction, by in traditional publishing. Um, so I went to work and worked in technology, got my student loans paid off. And, and at 42, met Tom, who I ended up marrying. And... So when I got married, I was able to sort of let my breath out a little bit in terms of writing. But at the same time, what happened, I had some setbacks in the work world. I mean, I really had an identity in the corporate world as, as a business analyst, as a project manager. I still had this other reality. Well, I guess two other realities. The one reality that was secret where these weird encounters with anomalous being and energies that had happened when it started when I was 10 and carrying on... Um, up into actually <laughs> we have Tom and I have a theory that he somehow warded them off because they they become much more subtle in recent years they, they don't do all the props that they used to do um, and so I had some setbacks in the work world and that that's that sort of a that's inner seismic event you know when I, I, I realize I'm not who I thought I was in the outer world that I I sort of psychologically descended and began to really come to terms with all of those weird anomalous encounters. And I felt like I had nothing left to lose. So I began, I came out, I came out as an experiencer and began writing more and more. And then uh, the, the publisher I'm with right now, Blue Fortune, uh, we connected, we had connected early on. I and mean, she's, she, Naria Living, it's her, her publishing company. Um, is the most wondrous of all publishers. I've never felt so believed in by anyone who's publishing my work. Um, so now she's publishing my fiction. She published, and actually Bad Mind has come out already. Um, you can find it on, um, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you buy your books. And now I've, I've moved into fiction and I'm pretty, pretty happy in fiction. Um, but I also love, I love the short essay and that's what Bad Mind really is. It's a collection of short essays and they're kind of they're intended to be intentionally light in tone because it's kind of a heavy topic yeah. writing about what I think, what I have observed is a, is an American taboo against speaking openly about encounters, one-on-one -on -one encounters with the anomalous, with the paranormal. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's one thing to be able to talk to someone casually about, Oh, your interest in astrophysics or, Ooh, what do you think about the theory about multiverses? And that's kind of okay. But if you said, you know, last night, um, I woke and there was a, I believe what is an angel was standing next to my bed and, and I believe was trying to give me a message and I'm just trying to figure out what that was. You get a very different reaction. 
Karen, you have said so much in that one answer uh, that, that I have so many questions. I'm not sure where to go. So I'm going to back up just a little bit because first of all, I hope hope this uh, this um, establishes some camaraderie between us because I had a crush on Marie Osmond. So <laughs> so therefore, we we kind of, you know, I mean, she was a little bit country. He was a little bit rock and roll. OK, yeah. um, how does it how does it differ both in the writing process plus in the emotional process? Because I know when you write and I know this from a lot of writers, when they write, there's an emotion that they put into that work that you might not put into some, you know, if you're if you're a carpenter or something, I'm not sure. But I know when writing, there's an emotion involved. How does it differ between a fiction work and a nonfiction work from the same writer? How does that work for you? Mm, well, I know creatively how it works. If I'm working on fiction and it's the first draft, then I'm really not even, I'm not intellectualizing much of anything. I am just writing. And it seems like characters appear on their own. And I, I don't know. I've heard some writers talk about, you know, they feel like they're channeling something. I don't know that I have felt that, but I, I am kind of astounded sometimes that I will, I'll just sit down to write. I might be working on a novel. So I'm thinking, okay, let's pick up where we left off yesterday. And the narrative goes in directions. I had no idea that it would. And so there's, there's very little intellectual processing. It all goes, it's all sort of submerged. And if I'm working on nonfiction, and here I'm thinking of like the essays in Bad Mind. There's, it's a little bit more of that intellectualizing upfront. I think about, well, what do I want? What do I want the basic shape to be? I do a lot of the work that I normally do for fiction at the end, at the start, if I'm working on nonfiction. Hmm. I think about length. I think about tone. Tone's a big one. Who's my audience? And my, for Bad Mind was um, the people who, the ones who roll their eyes when people say, you know, um, last night I, I looked out and I saw what I'm pretty sure um, was something extraterrestrial. And then that night I dreamed of a, these beings who gave me some information. Those people who roll their eyes at that instead of being curious, that was my intended audience. So that's partly why I wanted to keep it light. So tone, tone's a big thing, I think, with nonfiction yeah, I think tone is a really big thing. You know, I find it really fascinating how you just answered that question. I had um, a gentleman on uh, two nights ago who was talking about a series of books that he had written. And his his books, and I'm going to ask you the same question as well, his books were written, they're fiction. However, they were they, they took a lot of his research and this, these messages he was trying to convey as it related to religion and astrotheology. And he tried to tell those stories through a fictional account. So he used the fiction as a vehicle by which to actually get his ideas across. Um, but apart from that, he said the same, very, very same thing you just did. He said, in a way, these characters kind of write themselves. I sat down. I thought it was going to end here, but it actually took several turns that I didn't expect as I was writing it. And you basically said the same exact thing. Yeah. It's a funny phenomenon. I've, I've heard writers say it. And, and when I hear them say it, it doesn't have the impact as when I experience it. Because when, it hap when it's happening, and, and I type these days on the, on a laptop when I'm creating. I don't, you know, I, like the olden days, I don't write with a pen. Right. Um, and it just happens. And I'm not even really, I'm kind of aware that, oh, where did she come from? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it, but they do, they do, they just take off. And it's, it's a little bit of a mystery, but maybe it's a mystery because I am so Western in so much of my thinking. I mean, I, I was rereading parts of bad mind before tonight actually i read the whole thing i didn't realize what a quick read it is um but at the very very end it's an essay about a woman in india named usha and i met her when i was on business in india and one of my coworkers, she was his sister and she as it turned out she's sort of this undercover shaman and that's what a westerner would call her she has her own business a clothing business but she collects rocks and she has many cases of rocks in her home which is a very unusual thing in india um but she said that and we had an email exchange 10 years later after the visit and she said that for indians they have a strong liberating current and here i'm quoting her hence it is easy for us to understand the matters of the spirit 
whereas for Westerners, the current of manifestation is strong and hence are very good with their manifesting abilities. So I'm thinking, I mean, a part of me thinks maybe that's what it is. We are, I hate to use a royal we, but I'll do it anyway. You know, we're, <laughs> we, we manifest. We are very good at manifesting. And maybe where that, that's where it comes from, the imagination, that imaginal world, you know, imaginal world with a capital I, not imagining like making things up. But maybe those two, when they get together, that's where that ability comes from to, to you know, you're pulling from this world where these beings may sort of exist, but then you give them an existence. You, I don't know, kind of work as a gateway, a, a portal. That sounds wooey-wooey, doesn't it? No, it doesn't at all. Uh, not on this program, it doesn't. Uh, we, <laughs> we talk about these ideas a lot. Um, but I want to get back to some of these experiences that you started having as a 10-year-old or as a child anyway. What types of things were happening? You said a lot of this was coming to you as a dream, but not always. Yeah, um, at first it was um, sort of Jetson-like. Um, there's a fellow named Eric, that was his name, came and got me in a little spaceship and rode around the galaxy. Very oh, cartoon-like. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure where we were going with this, but now, yeah, okay. Yeah. It was, and I was 10. I thought, well, okay. You know, looking back, oh, that sort of fits. And then it, then it progressed. And then it was just me and this metal being made of red and black across from me, from a table, you know, something as mundane as a table, you know, do they have tables in other dimensions? <laughs> um, but this, this metal being was across from me. And I was just receiving information telepathically. And that's all it was. That's all that happened. Um, and how, do, how did you distinguish between when it was coming to you in a dream state versus not? If, did, or was well, it always coming through a dream state? In, in those days, it seemed to be always, well, not always, for the most part, coming through a dream state. Mm-hmm. And, it be, and the way that I arrived at that conclusion was I had, um, you know, sort of regular non-terrifying dreams. And the same quality was there for, for the non-terrifying and for these, these unusual, uh, the other, you know, the un- dreams about the anomalous. And the, the anomalous, dreams about the anomalous would always wake me up terrified right. at 3 a.m., you know, the witching hour. That was before I knew 3 a.m. was the witching hour. Right. Um, but then as, as time went on, there were a couple of real waking time instances. One was a um, man in black. And this was a long time ago. This was before men in black got much got much publicity. I don't even, I didn't know what they were. Pre-movie, Pre, pre-movie, right? Pre-movie, yeah. pre-movie. Um, this was 1976, and one paid a visit um, in the wee hours of the morning, but uh, the lights were on, so I woke up, and there he was. Um, and then, and then another time where, in, your, in your room, actually in um, in our lower level, uh, we had a, a TV room, and you know, in the olden days, we okay. had TV. Yep. And so I had fallen asleep on the couch, and I think I might have been watching Saturday Night Live. Um, Back in the good and, days of Saturday Night Live, too, by yes, the way. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, <laughs> and this was so long ago that this is when, when TV stations signed off the air. Oh, yeah. And when they did, you got the pixelated screen. And so I woke up, and I was, I was lying. I was laying. Is it lying or laying? It's, I say it's lying because laying, laying. is to put something down. Right. Yeah. Oh, you're right. I would lay something down. Yeah, so I was lying horizontally on the couch, you know, facing the TV. And... My eyes opened, and at about five feet away, I could see the pixelated screen. But what I saw close to my face were um, the knees of, you know, a man in, in in like a suit, trousers, and and I was terrified. Sure, I was terrified. I couldn't. I'd never experienced that terror, and so my he was holding a briefcase, <laughs> and this is like you know, two or three in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's holding, everything's black, but I could see, I could see the really nice weave of the wools. Like, Ooh, that's, you know, later on I thought, Oh, that was sort of like good quality, good quality fabric. Um, and my eyes just traveled up and there was a suit jacket and he had a bowler hat and he had blonde hair, what looked like a senatorial hairstyle and um, green glowing eyes. 
Okay, so the green glowing eyes answers my next question, and I was going to ask if you thought this presence was terrestrial in nature or extraterrestrial in nature, because some some people would say the men in black are a government group, yeah. um, and others would say the men in black are uh, extraterrestrials disguised or trying to disguise. Yeah, in recent years, I've read more about that. Um, and I've also, in recent years, read... Uh, when, you know, when Men in Black became a thing you could read about. Oh, and there's actually a, a Juilliard. He was at Juilliard. I think he's somewhere else now, but he was a um, professor of, I believe, mythology, Peter Reshevitz. And he was doing research for, you know, because he was a professor of mythology on Men in Black. And I did connect with him. And he had been interviewing a number of people who had, who'd had these encounters. And the people he was talking to had effects on them that completely changed their lives. And those were the people I didn't read much about. So I was really interested to hear about that. Um, and, and so, so yes, I knew, I don't even remember mentally what, what I was concept, what I was thinking, but I just, Oh, I, I was thinking if I start screaming loud enough, mom and dad will come. And so I, I, couldn't I had to break the hold so I yeah. put my hands over my eyes and I just started screaming and screaming and screaming and finally they came stumbling down the stairs oh oh well they told me later I guess everyone in the family had their own experience um before that and so they came stumbling down the stairs and I was hysterical and the short of it is you know I they brought me upstairs I sort of got settled in on the couch upstairs and and I I asked my dad, please check everywhere in the house. And my dad is former military. So he's he's not a slouch when right. it comes to security. Yeah. Um, but it turns out, you know, and he, and he said, okay, I did. And actually he didn't. I found out many, 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 many years <laughs> later. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. And when I talked to Peter Reshevitz about the experience, he said, well, was there anywhere that the man could have hidden? And, oh, yeah, my parents had this creepy furnace room and, he could have easily hid in there and if he was a corporeal being. And in, in my parents, again, I don't know what they were thinking. Again, ex-military dad. <clears throat> we lived in the country, but he, he, they didn't lock the door in those days. I know it sounds crazy. No, um, I, my parents never locked their doors, ever. Oh, okay. Never okay, did. Yeah. yeah, isn't that? Yeah. So that's what I experienced, too. And so he could have walked out of the house. He could have seen me on the couch and been like, Okay, I guess I got the wrong house. Better luck next time. You know, I don't know. And, and but but you're you're convinced. I mean, based on the green glowing eyes, you're convinced this was not a terrestrial encounter. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. I I didn't have any sense of him because I think I think I'm, my brain is well trained enough to know that if I'm encountering something that's familiar. I think some neural firing would occur where it wouldn't be such, there's a term ontological shock when you encounter something so beyond your meaning, what you understand to be meaningful that you just go into a kind of shock. And because that's what I experienced, that to me says, okay, he, he was not of the world of which I am familiar, the world, which I know, which is terrestrial. Right. Do you feel as though, uh, first of all, did you feel threatened at all? Secondly, uh, obviously you had a history of visions that would be, that would, could very easily be related to this. And what was the purpose of the uh, in-person visit at that point? Do you think looking back at it uh, retrospectively? Well, I actually, I've, I've worked with, um, he's, he's a psychotherapist. No, excuse me. He's a, hypnotherapist who works with, and I'm using present tense, he actually passed away. Um, and I worked with him to understand it. And I mean, I actually got to where I was joking, you know, maybe he's like, okay, ready for the next step. Uh Oh, you know, she's not ready. I, I, I wondered, I don't know, because it was, he was, he was calm. He was actually, his head was tilted so he could look me in the eye. Um, and he was smiling. And I actually feel kind of badly, you know, it's probably like, okay, this is her time and we're assigning you agent 50 or whatever. Right. And, and, and I freaked out. 
Um, so I have wondered. I don't have definitive answers. I have wondered if I, I can't they, imagine. I can't imagine that um, you know these these beings uh, are obviously significantly more advanced than we are. Higher and higher. Uh, I would assume more intelligent than we are. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you freaking out would have been a surprise. Um, that is a good point. Yeah. You know, it seems as though they would be prepared yeah. for that, unless there is some kind of hypnosis that, that that they can perform that keeps some people at you know from freaking out, and it doesn't always work. Uh, so therefore, sometimes they're in that situation. I mean, I'm just thinking through this now in real time. Oh, and maybe maybe I was close to it when I was just laying there staring. And at you him. broke broke free from it in some fashion. Oh, yeah. So I have to. So obviously, you know, as your life progresses here, and you have these experiences, and you recognize that it's difficult to talk about them with everybody. I mean, not everyone accepts this kind of conversation, and frequently you'll be looked at, you know, with a sideways glance or a raised eyebrow, or in some cases, worse when you tell these types of stories. So that's festering in you over the course of your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you decide to write this book. Is that how it happened? Well, Was this kind of see. therapy for yourself? Um. Oh, good, good question. I let me think about that. Whether it was therapy, I know that. Um, I don't know why it felt because well because I'd been, have been and had been a writer for so long. It was very uh, natural to. I mean, I, I kept a journal for years and years very natural to express whatever's going on on paper, except, you know, that secret life. Um, and even like my sister, Barbara, we, we actually had an experience together. This was more just along the lines of sort of freaky paranormal, where in the middle of winter, we were in a snowy field, it was dark. And from out on, from under the snow came these, this, this flock of frogs and threw themselves at us. Um, wow. But, but we never talked about it. And my family never talked about, no, no one mentioned it again. Only years, years, years. Karen, years that sounds later. a little biblical to me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, with the locusts next or what happened? I, mean, I know. That is, that is funny. No, that's very um, strange. I've never heard of anything like that. That's what, what in, in all of your years of considering that, and, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you've tried to make connections as to what exactly happened. What do you attribute that to? Is that... Is that a, was it an apparition? Was it, what do you think it was? Well, I think it. Um, well, since my sister Barbara was there, and I think she's listening tonight. She lives in PA now. Um, that I think they were really frogs, and mm-hmm. I think that both um, there is there is this uh, sort of thread in my family, and it was in my mother's father. He hated it. He he. Um, he was clairvoyant and he hated it because he saw his son's death in World War II. Oh, man. And he didn't want any part of it. He just didn't want to talk about it, didn't want any part of it. I think, I think my mom's mom told her she was, my mom was the youngest. So, so there's this, there's kind of this, I don't know, a thread in, in a part of my family where we're a little bit on the border in terms of, I don't know, porous. Mm-hmm. porous. <laughs> um, I've had, I had a woman who's, who she's a therapist who works with experiencers and she called me a gateway that there was something about me that energies. Now this sounds lovely, but almost too romantic for me that, that beings that are, are, are transforming from one dimension to another. I'm a vehicle for that. And there's a kind of porosity. That's my addition, a kind of porosity, because I don't really have many boundaries. I'm pretty open to just about anything. And I think my sister Barbara is like that. I don't know about my grandfather. I didn't know him well to know if he had that quality too. Um, but there's just, I wonder, for me, I just wonder if it's just sort of how I'm, how my life motor works. Because the, the experiences still occur. They're a lot more subtle now. I don't get any of the theatrical stuff. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask next. You said it mm-hmm. kind of stopped when, I don't know if it was when you met your husband or when you actually married your husband. Um, but at some point, it seemed like mm-hmm. him joining your life kind of changed mm-hmm. things a little bit. Or was it, yes. do, you, do you attribute it to something else? It, it did. Him joining my life. And, I mean, I was also, you know, 
probably just about to depart my childbearing years and becoming, you know, no longer, I've heard that theory too, that when you, when you're no longer, when women are longer, no longer of childbearing age, the aliens just lose interest. I'll tell you what, that, that raises a whole nother conversation, but go ahead. Yeah, it does. Doesn't it? Yeah. Um, But I like to think, you know, it was just Tom because Tom is very, he's very much a guardian. He's a protector. And that's something I'd never, ever had. And, needed but i had just you know i'd been pretty happy as a solitary um and then along came tom um but now when i do a kind of meditation now and um some things have happened what happens now is um i can it's like the state between dreaming and waking my eyes are closed but i can see things through a gray film and it happens during meditation and it's not sharp and clear like our everyday reality is. And sometimes I come away with particular images and words. Sometimes I don't. And I'm not too worried. I'm not needing to make it into something concrete. I'm curious to see where it goes. But I am curious about the vision with the eyes closed. And I, I like to think I, I I like the consciousness researcher expert Tom Campbell. He's probably best known for my big theory of everything, my big toe. <laughs> and he he says, you know, when you experiment, reach out to whatever you imagine these beings might be. And so that's what I'll do in meditation. And when I go in when I meditate, I really do leave all the the sensual world behind and the, the hearing, the everything, the, the regular sight. Um, and I do put that out there. You know, I'm here if you would like to connect. And so whatever I'm connecting with, I don't, I don't have any way to describe it. But I know it's, this is very interesting, whatever is happening. And I do see um, incredible light. This is when I'm coming out of meditation. Incredible light shows. My eyes are still closed. And there's no gray film at that point, but I'm seeing brilliant colors. And there must be something happening in my brain. There has to be some brainwave going on that does that. Um, so it's all very internal now. And I did have an experience where not too long ago that I woke and kept my eyes shut. So I was truly awake, but through the gray film could see a almost like a largish cat in the olden days i'd call it a demon but i don't know if i if i have a personal belief in demons anymore but it was curled up on my chest and it realized it that i was looking at it and it made eye contact and poof it went away well tell me about tom's uh attitude toward these types of encounters is he a skeptic is he has he had some of his own and i'm just curious because i just i've often wondered you know, we talk about these paranormal phenomena and we often will say, well, if you're open to it, you'll you'll more likely to have it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so when somebody if somebody comes in your life that may not be as open to it, that might shut down whatever those channels are in, in a mm-hmm. broader sense. Do you have any opinion on that? Hmm. Well, I know I have um, thought about Well, Tom's attitude is he's just well, he's a very. um He's got a wicked sense of humor, but he's also a very quiet man and um, and very smart. So he doesn't he doesn't offer uh, um, you know opinions without thinking about them first. I know that he respects what I do and he respects what I've experienced. Mm-hmm. He believes that I believe I've experienced it. Um, I haven't grilled him too much in terms of do you believe all these things that other people have experienced? Um, and he's been at some of the Paracon, at least one of the couple of Paracon conferences with me. And um, so he's, he's and I, where I had a table. So he's heard the stories that people have and he doesn't offer too many opinions. He just sort of takes it in and listens. I think he's open to it, but he doesn't, um, doesn't get too involved in it. Now that's truly the sign of a smart man. Not offering too many opinions. I am not you know, that smart. I, I run my mouth all the time, and it gets me in so much trouble. So I respect that. Good for Tom. <laughs> um, well, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking about what you said. I've heard that, too, where people say if you're open to it, you'll have that experience. And I think of my grandfather, who 
at least in terms of what he told his my his his wife, my grandmother, he he didn't want any part of it. Um, and I think about my dad, who he actually asked me not to write about any of these things until both he and my mom had passed away. And that was okay. It was not a big deal. I, at that time, I didn't have an urge to write about it. Um, but he had his own encounters. His, he, me and my mom. I mean, he and my mom had a sighting. Um, and they tried to chase down a UFO. Um, and again, you know, he's a former military guy. Yeah. He ran air ops, ran air ops uh, off off the coast of Vietnam. But um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you do you believe that that if people are open to it, it'll happen? I if I had to lean to one side, I'd say yeah. That there's probably some truth to that. But I've heard plenty of people who are completely closed to the idea have experiences too. So I'm not so sure that's a it's a you know a hard and fast rule by any means. Um, mm-hmm. I need to ask you this, though, and, and then I'm going to get into the book a little bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. We've heard, heard a lot in the news recently, and it seems to be, you know, this this spigot is starting to open up uh, in a way that we're going to get some information flow that we haven't seen before. But the government is talking about releasing information from the Pentagon about their knowledge and their information as it relates to extraterrestrial, particularly UFO craft, that type of thing. Um, does that excite you? Does it scare you a little bit? What are your thoughts on this idea of disclosure and the fact that we might actually be getting some answers soon. I'm excited. And I have a feeling that we might be a little bit surprised. Um, I have read a lot of the folks who've done a lot of the hard research, um, like journalist Annie Jacobson. Um, she's done a lot of research on area 51 and related topics. Also Don Don Derry. It's not a great name. Don Don Derry. He's a, he was a, He's a professor emeritus at uh, McGill University in Canada. And while he was being a professor, um, you know, very mainstream, his department um, also, they were fine with him doing research on experiences and, um, and, and UFO sightings. And so I've read a lot of these works that are very factual by, by factual people. And, and especially Annie Jacobson, what she has said about these little inklings about what was really going on at Area 51. I'm excited about disclosure. Um, I think I might be surprised, but I'm excited about it. I'll I'll be interested to see how, at least for me, how I tie it into what I experienced. I mean, I've had, not that a dream is the truth, but I know that during those dream and and, and waking time experience years, I, I know I had dreams where, um, you know, military site, military bases were really UFO landing sites. And that I was pretty young and that was before that was in the news. So a part of me thinks, Ooh, is, is that going to be, you know, something that turns out to be true, but there's just been so much that's been hypothesized about what it could be, you know, over the years, because we don't have the answers. That gives us a lot of room. It gives authors a lot of room. Do you, do you think, yeah, do you think there's any risk that um, we're all getting excited about this and when it actually does get released and when the documents are displayed or whatever it happens to be that they end up showing us, it's going to be as, as – um, inconclusive as it's been all along. I mean, we've seen some pretty incredible video, but we still don't have any definitive answers as to what Mm. we're looking at in those videos and that people are going to be disappointed. Do you think there's a risk of that? Oh, you know, I think probably yes, because yes, there are a lot of smart people that, that might be doing work for the government, but maybe they too don't have answers. And maybe whatever gets released, I think that's a really good point might just be more information about which we don't have solid answers. I think there would have to be, you know, I've been reading um, a new book that came out, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth by Abby Loeb. And he's the Harvard astrophysicist. I think that's his title. Oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah, I, know, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. yeah and I've seen yeah, the book. He's yep. the one who yeah, he came out positively about oh is it oh muamua when that when that thing when it was passed seen. yeah mm-hmm. yes when it passed and um and he was in this book he talks about how it's totally fine for someone to go into a physicist to go into the area of multi-universes somehow that's not weird but it is weird and career-threatening to go into the area of extraterrestrial life um so 
I, I sort of digress there from the topic. But yeah, it seems to me that it could be very likely we will just get more. I mean, if Avi Loeb, if he's writing and all the research, he's been researching for years, I did not realize how many years, um, on this possibility that he doesn't have firm answers, then why would, I don't know, why would the government have firmer answers? You know, I look at someone like uh, Stanton Friedman, who we lost recently, who's dedicated his life to trying to find answers. And he had such incredible, uh, not just stories, but substantiated stories and evidence and um, research that he would present that it seems as though the scientific community would look at something like that and say, you've, you know, you've got something serious here. We need to talk about it. But there's this barrier. And I think this barrier that has existed continues to exist is the same barrier that exists when you go to tell your stories to somebody who puts a hand in your face or a program like this talks about these stories and we get people that jump in the chat room and will say oh you guys are nuts go put your tinfoil hats on um but that's what that's what you that's what you were you're that's the message you're talking about here in the book right yep exactly and and when i started looking at the history of of how the the dominant cultures from about I guess from about the 12th century on, how they viewed anyone who who said I'm I'm going to write things that go against what the norm says is true, you know. Early on, we burned them at the stake. Yeah, and those things are not easy to forget. And and people, you know, over time, I think the spectrum shifted, and so you know, we it took us. It took a while for the, you know, the Catholic Church to stop condoning burning people. Um, but now, you know, people have lost jobs, at least from the, the books that I have read, you know, like by Friedman and by others where um, people who were involved in something and they did speak out about it and they would lo- they'd lose their job. People in academia especially seem very vulnerable. You know, they're, um, Tom Campbell calls them the high priests of our culture. And they are. They're the people that who we look to for well, tell me if this is true or not. Tell me how to think about this. And if they know that they can lose tenure or not get tenure, I don't know if they'll still might lose their job, but if they know that their career could be endangered by coming out and supporting theories that say, yes, it looks like we are not alone, then I can understand why they would be hesitant. So Avi Loeb seems seems very brave to me. It seems as though we'd have we would have learned our lessons here. Uh, I remember a story about a guy who uh, envisioned these tiny little creatures that were all around us, and they uh, they multiplied and they would get in our bodies and they would cause illness. And people laughed at Louis Pasteur when he was talking about that. And he actually turned, you know, obviously in retrospect, he invented modern medicine and how we look at pathogens and how we look at the way disease is spread. I mean, you know, these are the types of things throughout history. You know, Galileo is another one. There are people who had these what were considered crazy ideas. They were shunned and excommunicated and all the other things that Mm -hmm. the establishment could do to them. And then, you know what, lo and behold, they were right. And not everybody turns out to be right, but enough of them do, you'd think, that open minds would prevail. You would think. But, you know, when I when I started doing my research on, you know, how did we get to this point? Why are we at it? And, you know, I mean, people will argue with me and say, oh, what are you talking about? You know, you had an experience. Every, you can talk about it anywhere. You know, but it's it's not really not the not the the one on one um, encounter. Oh, I'm sorry. My Tom just stepped in and he just brought me a glass of wine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hello, Tom. And uh, that was Hello, well Tom. served. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I went back to actually, believe it or not, Plato and Aristotle. Um, and, and, and to bring that a little bit further forward to, uh, 12th, 13th century in, in what was the European intellectual center, which was in Spain. And probably a lot of people know this. I did not know that. And the those of the Islam faith and those of the Christian faith and those who were making decisions about what orthodoxy would be for both of those sects, they lived very close together. And a lot of the Islam thought leaders took Latin names, Avicenna, Averroes, 
and that's what they were known by. They wrote they wrote works in Latin that were available, well, I guess to those who could read, which probably would have just been, you know, the the I don't know what the what the elite would have been, but certainly the the Christian thought leaders. So right. there was a lot of intermingling, a lot of conversation, and they were making decisions about well, what are we going to put into our doctrine? And of course, not as simple as that, but that's basically what was happening happening 1400s in Spain 1300s 1400s Spain and so that they they're on the Plato side of it there was an Islamic thought leader who went by the name of Avicenna who was all for Plato because Plato was able to reconcile the divine with with the human the the anomaly he didn't call it the anomalous but the you know the unusual the paranormal he would have used a different word um with the everyday he had a way to reconcile the two and most importantly he said that each individual human can access the divine realms and this particular avicenna this particular islamic thought leader he developed this whole universe of levels and there was a level where uh i think it was the third realm and I think it was the angelic realm, but that's where all of these beings, these anomalous beings existed. And he, like Plato, believed that each individual through the imagination could access that realm and could access the knowledge of those beings. And it, that realm, he said, was all symbolic, but there was a way to use the imagination to cipher those symbols. But then there was another Islamic thought leader, Averroes, who said, no, nope, Aristotle, Aristotle's the way to go. Um, and Aristotle said, no, the, the average person, no, no way can they access the divine on their own. They need an intercessor. Well, the church, both the Orthodox Islam and Christianity said, you know, we're going with that. And of course, what that meant was that you know, a mere human being could not access the divine on their own. They needed an intercessor, a priest. Mm. They needed the church. Yeah. And to enforce that, you know, how many Giordano Bruno, both he and Copernicus were about at the same time. And Giordano Bruno, and they both had, uh, I think Copernicus was a lay priest. Giordano Bruno from Italy was a, um, a lay priest. So Copernicus wrote his, I didn't know, his 40-page document saying that the earth revolved around the sun. And he got a hand slap, but he, he got to stay in his order. But, you know, pretty much had, that squelched his astronomy career. Yeah. But Giordano Bruno, he, he wrote a tract saying there are other worlds, there are other beings. And the church... Um, Accused him of heresy, threw him into jail for seven years, and then burned him on stake. Unbelievable. And yeah. when I think about that, yeah, so we've got we've got that history. We may not really believe we can get burned at the stake, but we know that people in the not too far ago, long ago past did. But we also have those two very authoritative bodies, Christianity, Christianity Islam, um, that say, no, no, there are not other worlds. We, they don't tell us. We cut them out in 1400. Um, but it's so deep, that belief. Why do you think that – let's, let's bring this down to you know, day-to-day interactions with people. And when, when you have a, an opportunity to talk to somebody about this experience or someone will talk to a friend about a ghost encounter or an angelic encounter or whatever it happens to be, a Bigfoot encounter for that matter mm-hmm. – um, the people that laugh that off or shrug it off, why? what's their motivation? Is it out of fear, do you think? Or is it because they think they're, they're I don't know, more intelligent than that? Well, actually, I'm going to refer to John Mack on this. He was the, he was also Harvard. He was a, in some field of psychiatry, but he ended up counseling a lot of people who were experiencers. And he... Um, that was in the 90s, and anyway, I won't go into his history, but he said something about how our, our constructs of the world are so important that if you blow up a person's reality, you blow them up. Mm-hmm. And so if you say something that to you might feel, because maybe you've lived it, either your own beliefs or experienced it, that seems, oh, this is so average and every day, why can't I talk about it? My guess is, is that it kind of blows that person's reality up. 
and them because who they are is so tightly tied. And is that the exact same reason that, say, the Catholic Church will deny this? It'll blow their reality up? Ooh, it... I would think yes. Not only would it blow their reality up, but it blows their power up. Yeah. And I say that as a Catholic. I mean, I, I was raised Catholic. Oh. So, uh, oh. you know, but I, I look at some of these things and they just don't make sense to me as to why mm-hmm. they would deny something or, or not just the Catholic. I don't mean to pick on just the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. but, you know, why institutions will deny something that seems so obvious and not uh, yeah. try to understand it. And maybe they maybe they just are interpreting things a little bit incorrectly or something. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, what do you uh, what do you say about the person? And I've had this experience a thousand times where um Because I've been involved in this particular line of work for a long time and I've had my hands in uh, in TV shows like Ghost Hunters and, you know, someone will come up to me knowing that and they'll say, you know, you guys are nuts. I don't believe in ghosts. But you know what happened to me when I was 12? And then they tell me a ghost story. They tell me an encounter. How do you explain somebody like that? I've never understood. It makes me laugh, but I don't understand what's going on in their minds that they they tell me they don't believe it. But yet then they tell me the experience they had. Well, I have to admit, I've done a version of that. In the olden days, when I didn't tell, didn't talk about it, my own encounters, I did a version, and it's called hedging. Ah, that makes sense. Just in case you're going to laugh at me, ridicule, or whatever, I'm going to hedge my bets, and I'm going to say, oh, the kookiest thing happened. You know, that's kooky stuff. You're not going to, you know, whatever your lead-in is, like, what a bunch of nutty stuff. But, you know... Yeah. Yeah, I, it's hedging. And th- well, that's what I, I that's what I know it was when I did it. I it, so it could be that when people do it. I like that. We're going to that's a that's a new term, paranormal hedging. I like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um has anything changed do you think? I tend to think that uh early in the 2000s, about 2003, 2004 in particular when ghost hunters came on the mm-hmm. air and paranormal reality television became so popular that not only did you have ghost hunters, but TV shows like Ancient Aliens and uh, you know yeah. Bigfoot hunters and UFO hunters and all these hunters shows uh, came on, and they started to maybe make people think a little differently about this. Did it change the way people uh, have decided to talk or not talk about these ideas? I think so. I think um, I think a little bit. I know that when Ghost Hunters came on, I was an immediate fan. Um, and, and just loved it. And, oh, and by the way, TAPS, does T stand for the Atlantic? Yes, it does. Okay. Got it. Thanks. Okay. Um, (laughs) so, (laughs) um, and so let's see what were, I'm sorry. What was the question? Just, I'm just wondering if you, you think that, yeah, the paranormal reality television series craze, which is kind of still going on. It has ebbed and flowed a little bit, um, changed the, 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 uh, hesitancy in some people to talk about this. I, I, you know, I don't, for my, in my own experience, I don't know if it's changed the conversations that people have, I think that it's been a little bit more covert. I think people who can watch in the privacy of their own um, iPad or whatever, you know, they can they can watch it without anyone else knowing that they're watching it. So they can become informed and they can begin to explore other materials about it, which may also be, you know, TV or video based. Um, it may be book-based, podcast-based, any of these things. There's such a wealth to explore, and they can do so without anyone being aware. And and I have noticed, too, that there are more um, you know, meetups, more organizations that have a different flavor of it. Um, there are some that mix meditation with the anomalous. I mean, there's all these different flavors. So I think there's a lot of different ways to explore it personally and and with others, if you have others who feel the same way. In my own experience, I don't know that it's changed the conversation as much. I don't know. I, I, I don't think so, but maybe. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, one phenomenon that is a bit telling is that when um, Ghost Hunters started, 
if you went to the internet, which was still relatively, well, I don't know if it was young, but it was certainly in its adolescence um, at the time. If you went to the internet and tried to search for paranormal groups, paranormal investigation groups, you'd be lucky if you found five in the whole country. Uh, After Ghost Hunters, you would find five in your in your home, your small hometown, and you'd probably find 5,000 in your state, and there were probably yeah. 150,000 around the country, if not more. Um the internet helped. It, 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 kind of two things were happening here. The show was introducing these ideas to, to illustrate that you know what, you, it's okay to wonder if the noise you're hearing in the attic is more than just the wind. It's okay to think that and try to check it out. Um, at the same time, the internet was allowing people, like-minded people, to connect. You didn't have to, you know, yeah. you, you were expanding beyond your circle of uh, immediate contact into a world of of uh, a universe of people where there were far more that might think the way you do and you could talk about it. So a whole yeah. bunch of things were happening at the same time. You know, that's exactly right. So, and yeah, when you say conversation, exactly. Yeah. All these different things that are available, groups, everything online. And I do that myself, you know, try to find, I, I work with a writer's group or member of a writer's group based in New Jersey um, who write about these topics, some fiction, mostly fiction, some nonfiction, and, you know, there are a lot of serious-minded folks, and it's very comforting to be able to find those groups. And you're right, it is. It's a, just a ton easier now to just go online, find those groups, find those groups in your area if you need one-on-one. Well, I don't know if we do one-on-one anymore. Um, I mean, face-to-face. But, yeah, well, that's true, yeah. That's been an, an enormous change. So why is this important, do you think? I mean, you wrote the book because you felt it was an important thing to talk about. Why is it important that, you know, why is it, why isn't it, is it not healthy to keep these stories to ourselves? I, for me, it, it had to do with, um, my own state of spirit and I, I mean, spirituality, I guess, but I just think, you know, the state of spirit, the state of spirit in America, Western spirit, if, if we are, well, the we again, but if I, if I am just cutting out an entire slice of my life because it's not accepted, not acceptable to talk about. And what does that do to my own spirit, my own sense of self? And so I suppose it's partially important, I think, for me, just psychologically, because it means then I've woven those two parts together. Um, but also that sense of spirit and how I move in the world. I'm, I move m- much more comfortably in the world now that it's not a big secret. And actually, you know, that was 2014. So it's been seven years where it's like, oh, wait, was that a secret at some time? I mean, it's become, um, life is just a lot easier knowing that I don't, I don't have to keep it a secret, but also it's easier to not feel like it's bubbling up (laughs) in my throat and I'm going to have to speak about it. It's also easier to just, you know, leave that topic alone. So life is a lot easier. And so I would imagine when I think of all the people I've talked to, people whose stories I put in the book, Bad Mind, but also people I talk to just um, everyday life during that period where I was just collecting stories from everyone I met, that maybe they could get beyond. A lot of people seem to be right on that edge of awe about their encounters. In fact, the majority, it was very, I only met a very few uh, one woman who had experienced contact with fairies on Big Island um, when she was dying, um, she was very much at peace with it. She didn't feel the need to figure it out. But for the most part, the people I've met who share their stories, they don't go beyond the breathtaking moment where they were having this encounter. They don't go on to think, well, what does, how does that change me? What does that mean? How can I incorporate that? So that's that's why I think it's important to find a language to be able to talk about it. You know, a lot of times when people have these encounters, they wonder why, why them? Mm. So here we are, Karen, we are, uh, you know, a bunch of years after your significant encounters, you say they're more subtle now, and okay. you're, on, you're on a radio program talking about them. You're writing books about them. Does that answer the why question for you? Were you chosen uh, at some point, maybe, because ultimately you were to tell these stories? You know, you're so good. Another person, I was on a on another 
radio show and the the host said they asked the same question and i had i have always tried to stay away from thinking myself as chosen because i've read that that's a very common and i guess i just didn't have the self esteem to feel <laughs> i'd been chosen but now that you've asked me that too i am starting to wonder hmm could that be um could that be that there was okay you know the and 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 i'm not sure if it's as mathematical as okay karen cavalli you're chosen but here is this this being me who who's porous who can take in these things and who can transform them into the written word or the spoken word um i'm starting to to wonder if that that could be it so thank you for for asking that i don't have a definitive answer but i I like that thought. What do you hope people take away from the book when they read it? That that there's a lot of things that people experience and that there's a lot, a lot of people who experience it. Um, The writer, uh, let's see, Robert, Robert. um, Sorry, I have to find it. And I'm not, oh, here we go. Um, the writer Robert Damon Schneck, in an interview, 2014 on Darkness Radio, he said that if you took an honest census, quote unquote, that is, if you went door to door, right, like you could, but if you did, and you said, you know, do you believe in the paranormal? Have you seen a UFO? He believed that the majority would say, you know, yes, I do believe. Yes, I have seen. Yes, I have experienced. And I believe that too. And I, my hope would be that when people read the book, that they would also think either, okay. It's not just me. Look, it's all these people, too. And then also the people, the skeptics would say, huh, maybe there is something to these experiences that I hear about. You know, it's so funny because we find ourselves in a bit of an echo chamber here when we talk about this stuff, because obviously we're talking about it. We hear we hear a lot of these stories and we tend to all come at them in a far more open mind than maybe the general population would, um, because I see these stories as being a bit of a badge of honor. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, something yeah. that you should you should stand up and talk about because they're so fascinating um, mm-hmm. and it's hard to hard to accept and recognize that not everybody feels that way. In fact, most people probably don't. Yeah, but, you know, I bet they wouldn't feel that way about um Oh, like some of the women mystics of the Middle Ages, um, Julian of Norwich. Um, I mean, I've read about these women in the Middle Ages um, who had these these mystical visions. Now, they were women who were, for the most part, they were in convents. They were women. Um, they were, you know, of the church. They were religious. But I wonder if if the skeptics put them in a different category because these women heard the voice of God. They called it God. Right. They saw beings, they heard things, they were told things. They get their own category, I've noticed. I've also noticed there's a bit of a gray area developing, and it seems to be more and more common to have this particular conversation, that often what we've thought of as extraterrestrials or or some type of alien uh, life form from another planet, um, there's starting to be a blurred line between those encounters and something we might think is of as more spiritual or even more yes. religious. What do you think of yes. that blurring? Oh, yes. You know, actually, one of there's a, a mystic from the 1300s, um, Ibn, Abar, Ibn Arabi, and that is exactly, he believed that this third realm that Avicenna had said, borrowing from Plato, existed where all these beings were. He believed that too, that it was more a matter of spirituality, that there is this multi-layered spiritual dimension and there are invisible beings who inhabit these other realms. And that's exactly what he said. And that was, you know, the 1300s. So that was, what, 800 years ago? Yeah. Um, so that is that is something that I think about a lot. And I don't have any definitive answers, but I have wondered, I wondered that a lot, that there really are... Well, what do you think about your encounter? Do you think yours was uh, extraterrestrial in the sense that it was a being from another planet, or do you think it was more interdimensional or spiritual? I lean toward the last two, um, interdimensional or spiritual. And I don't know why, actually. I mean, because I've read enough of the experts like Don Don Derry and, um, and others who have factual evidence that that there are 
um, there are visits from crafts and beings um, outside our world. My own, personally, um, I think probably more in the category of interdimensional and spiritual. Though I have talked to others. You know, when I hear the abduction stories, I've never had that experience. When I hear those, then I think, okay, that sounds like something maybe not so much interdimensional or spiritual. But I don't know. That's opinion and not worth much. Or we could have both happening simultaneously, right? Well, yeah, we could. Yeah. Um, the problem with doing the show is that we run out of time very quickly, and we've basically uh, come to the end of our hour together. Oh, but I did want to take sad. a minute. I did want to take a minute because, you know, we've been talking about your book, Bad Mind, which uh-huh. um, you've also written the uh, No Boundaries trilogy. Is there any connection between the work of those two? Um. In terms, let's see, there would be, but in terms of um, the transformation that is possible when you have encounters with the otherworldly, mm-hmm. it becomes, it's, it fully flowers in the No Boundary series. And the No Boundary series, how many of those books of the three are available? Two are available. Um, Undercover Goddess is book one, Down is book two. They're both available now, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, anywhere you buy your books. Um, and book three, tentatively titled Return of the Goddess, where it all comes together that we'll looking at maybe sometime this year. Um, and that's a series, so there there will likely be more books in that series. And people can reach me on a couple different ways. They can um, re- use the contact page on my website, Karen Cavalli at Weebly.com. Um, I'm on YouTube. What else do I do? Instagram. I actually do LinkedIn and I do a ton on LinkedIn because I have my day job, but I blend the two. I blend the two worlds. Um, so LinkedIn is a good place to find me, but people can email me directly, caseygoodguide at gmail.com. But you can also use the contact on my webpage, karencavalli.weebly.com. And Bad Mind is also available at all the same places that you mentioned? Yes, Bad Mind is available, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, wherever you buy your books. That's terrific. Karen, thank you so much for sharing this hour with us. It's been uh, fascinating, very interesting, and best of luck with all the books. Thank you so much, JV. This has just been a great experience. I appreciate it. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.